Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm eager to talk about what's ahead in the airline industry. Scott McCartney, what's ahead this week is April Fool's Day. So an early happy April Fool's Day to you. Happy April Fool's Day to you, Ben. We don't do an April Fool's special podcast with all kinds of fake, funny stories. Maybe we should. But sometimes it seems like April Fool's Day is every day in the airline industry. We'll talk today to a longtime airline investor. People can earn a lot of money investing in airlines, and they can lose a lot of money investing in airlines. That's no April Fool's joke. What do you think, Ben? Are airlines a good investment? Only for people with steel spines, I think, Scott. <laughs> and do you remember Aviation Dilly? I don't, know. Aviation Daily oh. used to be the go-to source for industry people on daily news. And on April Fool's Day, they would publish Aviation Dilly, yes. where they would have all kinds of fake stories. It was always a very funny read. I do remember now. I, you know, my, my college newspaper was the Chronicle at Duke University, I'm, and I'm still involved. I'm, I'm the current uh, co-chair of Duke Student Publishing Company and, um, and teach at Duke, so I'm still very involved in it. And we, we had this huge tradition of doing an April Fool's edition called the Comical. Um, and the problem with it is now, when you're digital and everything lives forever, um, it's hard to distinguish between April Fool's stories and non-April Fool's stories. So it's it's really become a difficult problem. When you were only publishing the paper, it would be very clear that this was a, a spoof edition. Um, now it's not so clear. Well, that's right. And I think that's a general problem with news today. Yeah. Depending <laughs> on what you read and what you watch, you're not sure if it's April Fool's Day or not. That's very true, Ben. So in news this week that's not foolish, Skytrax named Terminal B at LaGuardia, that's the central terminal, as the world's best new terminal and also gave it a five-star rating, the first terminal in North America to get a five-star rating. Rick Cotton, who's the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, said there have been two miracles in Queens, the Mets 1969 World Series win and the rebuilding of LaGuardia. The rebuild of the Delta Terminal will be finished later this year. LaGuardia, of course, used to be a hellhole and a national embarrassment. Everyone hated the delays, the roof leaks, the long lines to wretched bathrooms, the fire hazard overcrowding, the clogged roads along cab lines. I could go on and on. Many, many years ago, I had lunch with Bill Dakota, who was the aviation director of the Port Authority. We used to actually meet regularly. He told me he had this plan to rebuild LaGuardia while it continued to operate. And I very unprofessionally laughed. 
Bill was unfazed. He said, everyone has the same reaction, but they were going to do it. Bill died suddenly and unexpectedly, and it's a shame on many levels, including the sad fact that he's not here to see his vision become a reality. Rick Cotton took the reins of this project and really made it happen. Rick is a great guy and a terrific manager. I used to call him when we did the airport rankings I created, and he quite responsibly answered every question about how every traveler hated his airports. Just wait, he kept saying. And now look, LaGuardia's Terminal B has gone from the absolute worst to the best, at least according to Skytrax. It really is a miracle. Well, you know, Scott, I've traveled into LaGuardia and I've seen the new Terminal B. And while I can't say it's five star because there's a lot of airports I haven't been to, it is in absolute cases very, very nice. And you're there and Several times I had to say to myself, I'm actually in LaGuardia. (laughs) It's like, it really, really is nice. And your mention of Bill Dakota was really nice for me, Scott. Bill was my boss when I was an intern in college. When I was at Princeton, I interned at the New York, New Jersey Port Authority. Bill hired me for that internship. And It's part from his excitement about the industry, and I heard about his vision for LaGuardia even then in the mid-80s that made me want to become an airline guy. He was a terrific guy. And, you know, one of the things I love most about the new LaGuardia terminal, and this was done very purposely, Rick Cotton told me, um, I love the bathrooms. They they went to... five-star hotels and said, what are, what can we do that would make the bathrooms really special? Because uh, it turns out people really evaluate airport terminals by the bathrooms. So as nice as the terminal is, what's really nice in the new LaGuardia terminal are the bathrooms, um, which is a complete turnaround uh, from what it used to be. Then, Scott, another news item I wanted to raise is the shrinking of the American Airlines corporate sales department. I think this is a really interesting development with broad implications. It started back in January when Allison Taylor, then the chief customer officer, departed. Allison came to American in 2016 from Starwood Hotels to run corporate sales. Vasu Raja, a former guest on this show and American's chief commercial officer, took over corporate sales and layoffs began. American executives have said the change results from a permanent change in business travel. They're saying the road warrior is no more and contracts between companies and airlines that traded discounts for loyalty and volume won't be as important. Only the biggest companies matter to American in terms of a salesperson. In fact, for companies spending less than $1.5 million per year on American, the airline said it won't offer contracts. Those companies can book direct like everyone else. Uh, 
It's very interesting to see how this goes. American is also saying that their cheapest fares, the basic economy fares, will no longer be available in third-party distribution like Expedia or others, but only on AA.com. I'm sure Delta and United are looking at this closely, whether this is an overreaction to the change in corporate revenue or not is something we're all going to see. But you can't say that American isn't being bold here. No, you can't. Um, and we sh- probably should have seen this coming, right? American has been moving to direct booking in many ways for years. It's been at war off and on with middlemen like Sabre and has been pushing companies to book directly with the airline. Um, and as you mentioned, the basic economy fares are coming out of uh, travel agency systems uh, and and maybe some other aspects uh, like booking ancillary uh, seat fees or bag fees. That all makes it harder for travel agents to really compete on the same playing field as uh, people booking directly with the airline. Uh, so another way that American is is trying to basically move people out of somebody booking for them and and have them booking directly with the airline. I don't think this is just about cost reduction. It's about control. And it's about the reality in many places that business travelers have to fly American. If American is the dominant airline, why give the company a discount to fly American? And if Delta and United dominate, American isn't going to get that business. New York, LA, maybe a handful of other places have companies worth competing for in terms of sales executives and competition in the airline business, but there aren't many of those places. And this is also interesting confirmation that business travel really has changed, if they stick with it, right? If it really has changed permanently. American says the six-day-a-week corporate traveler is no more. Corporate life has changed. And that really does have profound implications for airlines. And I think we're starting to see that. You know, years ago, Scott, when I worked at Continental Airlines, one of our biggest corporate customers was Enron before they had all their problems. And if Enron had an airline in terms of what they needed for their business, it would have been Continental. We flew everywhere they needed to go from their hometown of Houston. So they wanted to fly us, we wanted their business. And an interesting thing we looked at is we looked at a 10-year history. This would have been from the middle 90s back to the middle 80s to make sure people are thinking of the time right so it's not yesterday, right? But we looked at a 10-year history of Continental's business with Enron. In six of those years, they had formal structured deals with Enron where they traded better fares for volume requirements and things like that. And in four of those years, they had no deal at all. You know the interesting thing about this, Scott? In the four years with no deal with Enron, Continental collected 
10% more revenue per year than in the six years with a corporate deal with Enron. So based just on that, you'd say that the relationship sales side of the business took 10% of Enron's business away. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a long time ago, but I'm guessing that what Vasu has seen is something similar, just like you said. In places like Dallas, Charlotte, Miami, we don't need to give those huge discounts. But in places like you said, in New York or L.A., or probably Chicago in their competition with United, Mm -hmm. it might make more sense. The other thing, Scott, is your comment about the six days a week corporate travel is no more and has profound implications for airlines. You're absolutely right. And the interesting thing to me is in the first one or two years of the pandemic, airlines did things like move airplanes to more leisure destinations, maybe lower some frequency or reduce some frequency in high business routes to reflect this. But that's relatively easy to do and easy to reverse if it doesn't work. Things like changes to the loyalty program, Things like changes to the corporate sales staff and maybe even physical seat reconfigurations in the airplane, putting maybe more premium economy and fewer business class seats. All of those things cost money, take time, and take a long time to reverse if it's a wrong decision. So to me, it's interesting that we've started to see some changes in the loyalty programs. We now see American addressing the corporate sales force. And so are we within the next year going to see some airlines say, we're rethinking the number of seats we have on these airplanes? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Ben. And it's going to really be interesting to see how other airlines respond on corporate sales. You know, Southwest has been trying to beef up its corporate sales division. And so um, be interested to see what Southwest does if it doesn't see Americans exit from, particularly from the small business area, to, as an opportunity for Southwest to, to sweep in and pick up some of that business that American used to have. Airlines Confidential wants to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared fan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And I want to remind listeners about Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. And thanks to Duhop for supporting our appearance at the event. Ben and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th, recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com 
and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. Aviation Festival Americas is always a great event, and we'd love to meet listeners in Miami. So take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. We're very excited to have Philip Ordway on the show today. Phil is a managing principal at Anabetic Investment Partners, LLC, a Chicago-based long-term value investment firm. Phil is a longtime airline investor and analyst. He knows this industry from an investor's perspective, which sometimes is the same as management, pilots, and customers think. Sometimes it's a little different. He's also an adjunct lecturer at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, where he also got his MBA. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you, guys. I'm thrilled to be here. I've listened to the uh, to your podcast for a long time. And Scott, I used to read your column at the Wall Street Journal. Ben, you taught me a lot of what I know about the airline industry. So I'm, I'm grateful to both of you guys and just thrilled to be here. Well, that's great. Why don't you start by telling our listeners about anabetic investors and how important airline and travel companies are to your firm? Sure. Yeah. So we run a a pretty concentrated portfolio of investments. We're long only. I used to work at a big fund that did a lot of uh, long and short investing and a lot of credit and distressed debt as well as equity. And now we're pretty much just equity. I mean, we I'd love to find some good credit ideas. I can talk a little bit about the American bankruptcy way back in the day, because that was one of the great home runs of all time in the credit and distressed world. But unfortunately, I missed it. So yeah, but we, we run a pretty concentrated portfolio of eight to 10, maybe 12 uh, investments at a time. And we tend to hold them for years and years. So, you know, I know this is something you want to talk about later and the volatility that comes around in the airline industry, but we seek to take advantage of that volatility and then just ride good prices and good investments in companies for a long period of time that we can. And, you know, contrary to a lot of the belief that is out there that the airline industry has just been a, a, a graveyard for investors over the years, which is, is largely true. There's also been some enormous home runs, um, that we'll get into. So that was how I, I kind of came about to the industry in a little bit of a roundabout way. But I've studied it for now probably seven or eight years, I guess, as an investor and just found it absolutely fascinating. I think the old saying goes, I think it was John Ostrauer, formerly of CNN, who now runs the Air Current newsletter, who said there's there's no industry in the world that sort of encapsulates absolutely everything that's going on in the world, right? You can't find an economic issue, a geopolitical issue, (laughs) any news story, like there's always an airline angle to every story. And so, you know, for whatever reason, I've just always found it to be an absolutely fascinating industry that encapsulates everything in the macroeconomic and microeconomic world you'd ever want to look at. So it's really been fascinating and taught me a lot about business and about investing. That's so true, Phil. And uh, and when I was in the newspaper world, um, I lived that every single day. Yeah. Uh, tell us, as an investor, how do you think about the industry today? Uh, is it an industry worth investing in, uh, all or at least some sectors? Well, yeah. So what I would say is, you know, as an investor who can go anywhere and, and look at anything that I choose, you know, I don't feel compelled to look at this or that just because I have to, right? I mean, there are some funds that are constrained. They can only look at certain size companies. They can only look at companies that pay a dividend. They can only look at companies that have investment grade rating or something like that. I don't have any of those constraints. So I'm coming at this really from a clean sheet of paper. What I would say is this, you know, the world pre-financial crisis and pre-consolidation 
looked very, very different, right? I mean, pre-2010 or 2012, you really only had two companies that ever produced much in the way of shareholder return over a sustained period of time, right? Southwest Airlines was an enormous home run that if you had bought that pretty much at any time in the 1980s or the 1990s and held on to it for 5, 10, 20 years, you would have done enormously well. And the same was true at Ryanair over in Europe. And we'll come back to why those two might have been enormous successes. Pretty much every other company, uh, again, outside of Alaska, Alaska is a little bit different as well, but pretty much every other company that you would have heard of that would have been investable went through bankruptcy at least once. And so then what happened is the industry obviously consolidated. A lot of your listeners know about that story. So you kind of have to start the clock over again in 2010, 12, 13, somewhere around there, once the industry came out of the financial crisis and came out of that period of consolidation. And then things were really getting really good, in my opinion. And the industry was really in a very healthy, rational place uh, from a balance sheet perspective, from a competitive perspective. And then COVID happened, right? So, you know, I don't know how other people looked at it, but in the airline industry, I always considered, you know, a potential disaster to be something you just had to prepare for and and you just had to underwrite. And unfortunately, I always thought of it in terms of uh, a natural disaster in the weather sense of things, you know, a, a volcano in Iceland or an earthquake in the Pacific Northwest or something like that, that just really wreaks havoc with the fleet and with the physical infrastructure that's so important to this industry. I did not underwrite in any of these scenarios, a multi-year pandemic that, you know, for large parts of that time really shut down global travel and airline travel. And then on the back end of it, just completely rewrote the rules for the things that matter most, because, you know, you have to consider what your customers want to do. And pre-COVID, business travel was a huge part of it. And now post-COVID, business travel looks totally different and leisure travel looks totally different. And the, the way people use airlines and the way that they fly is just totally different. So what I would say as an investor is it's absolutely worth investing in. And I can almost guarantee you that there is good money to be made from this point going forward. But part of why it's so fascinating is, is there's no way to say definitively, this is how the future is going to look for sure. Right. I, I don't think anybody from the CEOs of the airlines on down would say that they have extreme confidence in the way that the world is going to unfold from here. So that's that's where investing comes back down to the art of dis- discounting cash flows and the art of competitive analysis. Because if you can get the right price for a well-managed airline that's going to you know do well over the next two, five, 10 years, you're going to do really well. But if you overpay or you run into an airline that has a, a vulnerable balance sheet and something else bad happens, then you're going to have a lot of problems. So um, I, I wish I could give you a more specific answer than that, but I do think that all airlines have a price and I think all investments have a price and it's just a matter of knowing your own risk tolerances and knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. I'll also say this though too, you asked about all sectors um, and, and all airlines. I, I do have a, a special affinity for low cost airlines and, and particularly in the in the ultra low cost world that, that has become so prevalent on the on the backs of what Southwest originally did, what Ryanair kind of perfected, and now what some of the other ultra low cost airlines in the world like Frontier, Spirit, Wiz, Valaris, and others have done. Um, this is still an industry where despite what people say and what they like to complain about on social media and, and talk about with their friends, a seat is still kind of a seat. And so if you have a cost advantage, you're already in a better position. And if you let your costs get away from you and start competing on the basis of revenue, it becomes really difficult. And and so look, Delta is one of the best managed 
companies I've ever come across. It's a, it's an exceptional organization in a lot of ways, and they've found a way in many of their markets, in many aspects of their business, to compete on revenue rather than cost. Now they don't let their costs get totally away from them. That would be oversimplifying things. But for your average airline, I mean, you don't have to look any farther than kind of the the state-owned flag carriers in a lot of countries where, you know, their cost structures just get totally away from them and they end up in bankruptcy court. So, you know, you you really do have to be careful, but I I would be reasonably confident saying that in five and 10 years from now, that if you have an airline with a good balance sheet to start right now and a cost advantage that they will do quite well. Well, Phil, tell us about the idea of industry multiples and how the pandemic has changed these. To me, that's an interesting story in this industry that doesn't get talked about much. Will the industry get back to pre-pandemic multiples in the next year or two? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll, I'll give you a quick, uh, you know, this is my my pedantic, my professor side coming out here about how I approach this. And so I think the right way to think about it when you come to the topic of multiples and, and valuation is you have to be really sure what it is you're trying to do. Because as an investor, if you're not trying to speculate on what the price is going to do, and there's there's nothing wrong with speculating on what the price is going to do, that's just a different exercise than trying to value the whole company, right? Because the value of any financial asset, whether it's the common stock of Delta Airlines or an equity ownership in an apartment building or an acre of farmland that you own, the present value of that asset, that financial asset that you own is the discounted future value of cash flows, right? So you take all the cash flows they're going to make from here until the end of your ownership or the end of time or whatever, and you discount it all back to today. And so doing that is one practice. It's one discipline. It's one way of looking at the world. And then there's the way of looking at the world that I just mentioned about kind of speculating, well, I'm just going to buy this stock because somebody else is going to buy the stock or the price is going to go up for whatever reason, or I'm going to buy it or short it because the price of oil is going to move a certain direction. And that's going to in fact impact the, the current price. And I'm just going to buy it today and sell it tomorrow and or sell it in a few months or whatever the, the case may be. And kind of in between is the shorthand of valuation multiples, right? So you know, there's pricing, right? Where you're saying I'm putting a price on this asset today and then I'm trying to actually value it. So pricing it again, to use a kind of a crude analogy would say, well, somebody else paid a million dollars for the house next door or a million dollars for the apartment building down the street. And that square footage is X and my square footage is X. So, you know, it should be about the same. Valuation would be, well, what are the cash flows that that house could generate as a rental property or this apartment building could generate? So, you know, you can put cap rates on an apartment building and you can put multiples on cash flow or sales or EBITDA or EBITDA or whatever you want to do for an airline. But you just have to make sure that you're kind of thinking through all the factors that can can go into this. Right. Because just as you start tweaking interest rate assumptions or you start tweaking terminal value rates um, in, in a DCF in a discounted cash flow model, you know, things start to really, really change. And as you get further and further out on the time horizon, the impact of those numbers gets really, really stark. And so this is where, you know, in the early days, somebody that was buying equity, you know, shortly after, even several years after Southwest or Ryanair or whoever uh, went public, you know, their assumptions were just way different than how reality turned out. And that's why those investors were able to make 10, 20, 30 times their initial stake sometimes and, and get a tremendous outcome. So, with that little sermon aside, I did take a look at some of the multiples that have played out in, in the recent years, and it's it's actually kind of interesting. And so I picked Delta just because, again, I think it's a really 
interesting company, a really well-run airline. And it's probably the only airline, at least in the US, that hasn't changed a ton from its pre-COVID strategy, right? So if we go down the list, right, like United has actually changed quite a bit and, and management changed right before COVID. And so they're they're close, but they're not quite as stable as Delta has been. And American has a ton of debt on its balance sheet. So multiples there can get really distorted. Um, Alaska would have been a good choice here too. They haven't changed a whole bunch. Southwest, if you look at the multiples today, you know, boy, there's a lot going on with that company with everything that's been happening in the news lately that I'm sure everybody's seen. It's definitely not as stable as, as Delta has been. And you go down into the, the smaller carriers, JetBlue is obviously in, a, in the middle of trying to buy Spirit. Uh, Frontier was the original suitor for Spirit. And, you know, so there's just a lot going on. So anyway, I picked Delta because they're probably the least noisy of the companies. If you look in early 2020, so a little over three years ago to today. So back in early 2020, right before COVID was hitting and right as they had already announced their 2019 numbers, the market cap of the company was about $37, $38 billion dollars. The total enterprise value, so adding back the debt and taking back the cash balance, was about $52 billion. And that was on trailing sales in 2019, about $47 billion. So it's about 1.1 times trailing sales on an enterprise value basis. They had just generated $7 billion of operating income. That was about a 14% margin. You were paying about seven to eight times operating income. EBITDA, which is not my favorite metric, we can come back to that later, was about $10.5 billion. And earnings per share, also not my favorite metric, was about $7.55, so about eight times earnings per share. Free cash flow, which is actually my favorite metric for, for this industry and for most metrics, was about $3.5 billion. And we'll come back to what's been driving free cash flow a lot in this industry. So you're getting about a 9% yield in terms of the after-tax, after-capital expenditures, free cash flow the company was, was generating. If you roll it all the way forward, I did this, I think, on Friday. Uh, so we're, we're recording this in, in March of 2023. Um, the price is, is still down from where it was in early 2020. The market cap's down quite a bit. So it was $37.5 billion. It's $20 billion today. But the enterprise value hasn't fallen quite as much because the debt's gone up so much. The enterprise value pre-COVID was 52. It's about 44 today. So the debt's gone up a lot and is just taking a much bigger share of the value. If you look at this year's sales, they'll probably generate 52, 53, 54 billion of sales. So sales have actually gone up, which is kind of fascinating, right? From the pre-COVID starting point to today, sales are actually higher, but operating income is only going to be about 5 billion. That's about a 10% margin. They're still not back to pre-COVID margins. And that's about a nine times multiple. So you're actually paying more today per dollar of operating income than you were pre-COVID, which I think is contrary to a lot of people's perceptions. EBITDA, likewise, about $8 billion versus $10.5 before. Uh, on a multiple basis, it's kind of in the same ballpark. And free cash flow is still way down. So you're only generating probably this year a billion and a half of free cash flow versus three and a half before. So you were, you're paying a higher multiple today of free cash flow than you were pre-COVID as well. And again, this is all subject somewhat to the fact that we're still coming out of COVID, right? So 2023 is not the final verdict on what the world is going to look like post-COVID. So we're kind of potentially splitting the difference here. But I guess what I would point back to is that that is the issue, is we still don't know what this industry is going to look like post-COVID. Are people going to continue to have the money to spend a lot on leisure travel? Are they still going to be commuting from some of these more remote 
places where they're working now remote a lot of the time and taking more concentrated business trips or the salespeople that take trips every week going to get back out there because look, it still matters that those last five, 10, 15 seats on an airplane still generate a massive share proportionally of the operating profit of that flight and, and of the consolidated operating profit of the company. And likewise, the front of the cabin, right? Those, those premium passengers, if you have a first class product, you know, Delta American United, particularly, and, and less so Alaska and JetBlue, they still really, really matter. And how much is transatlantic and transpacific going to come back? So we're still splitting the difference here, but I would say, you know, th- this industry never got a great valuation beforehand, before COVID, right? And, and those numbers that I all just threw at you guys, you, you know, one time sales, and, you know, now we're at 1.2 times sales or something. It's actually a little bit above that. It's actually gone up, but that's that's a pretty low multiple. And, and a single digit multiple of earnings and operating income and free cash flow is not a demanding valuation. And I think because of the fact that people just have this narrative that airlines are doomed to continue to repeat the tragedies of the past, that you're probably not going to get out of that world anytime too, anytime soon until we get to the next recession or the next natural disaster or whatever, and the airlines sail right through it without a problem. And everybody thinks, oh, well, maybe this is a slightly better business than I thought. And then maybe they'd be willing to pay up for a little bit higher multiple of, of current earnings and cash flow and income. But I, for now, I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So do you think more consolidation is good for the industry or bad for the industry from an investor's perspective? Yeah, I would certainly be good from an investor's perspective for the industry to get a little more consolidated. But I would say this, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an antitrust expert. I've seen a lot of these things happen over the years. And I actually don't have a dog in the fight specifically around any of the consolidation that's um, underway today or proposed today. So I'm not talking my book in that sense. But look, I, I read the the complaint um, that's seeking to block the Spirit JetBlue merger, I didn't find it very compelling. I don't think there's a strong case to be made that the industry's over consolidated. And this is totally contrary to the narrative of the general public, I would say, right? Because I think if you talk to the general public, and I think even if you talk to a lot of investor types, right? I mean, go, go talk to your average hedge fund analyst or, or portfolio manager who doesn't cover airlines. They would say, oh yeah, airline tickets are way more expensive than they were five, 10, 20 years ago. And that's just categorically false, right? And that's even before you take into the effects of inflation. So, you know, I think the airlines are starting to beat that drum a little more that like, you know, hey guys, by the way, as a share of GDP, you know, the airlines actually generate way less revenue than they used to, uh, you know, pre, certainly pre-deregulation, you know, around the late 1970s, early 1980s, but even 10, 20, 30 years ago, like there's no case to be made that the airlines are taking an undue share of revenue out of the economy. There's no case to be made that because they're so consolidated, they're colluding on prices and really gouging people. I mean, I think it would be really actually entertaining to get your average airline executive in a room with a bunch of hedge fund analysts and have the hedge fund analysts accuse them of, you know, sitting back on their heels and just raising price and taking too much revenue because I think everybody in the airline industry knows how brutally competitive it is, right? So when I, when I see a business that's brutally competitive and then I see an antitrust complaint that they're too consolidated, I mean, one of those two has to be wrong. And I know which side I think is wrong. But yeah, look, I think more consolidation would clearly be good, but I do think that ship has completely sailed in terms of the big three or the big four, right? I mean, it's regardless of the regime in Washington and and whatever the political winds would say, it's going to be really, really difficult to see American United Delta or Southwest buy anybody else. And I think, look, for 
whether it's on merits or whether it's on politics, I think as you're seeing, like they're, they're clearly fighting the proposed merger of Spirit and JetBlue. But yeah, look, I mean, from an investor's perspective, I mean, this is still a high fixed cost, low variable cost business. And the more you can consolidate that capacity and the more you can rationalize the competition, the better it would be for investors, right? Because you'd probably see slightly more stable top lines and slightly more stable operating margins. And in my opinion, it would still be a viciously competitive industry and still be very pro-consumer in that regard. But, you know, that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Phil, you've mentioned a big change in business travel. How do you see that evolving or maybe it has evolved? Has your own company changed the way it thinks of travel? Yeah, I mean... I would say everybody's changed the way they think of travel. So I, I don't know that I have the answer here because I think what I would have said a year or two ago would have been pretty wrong in a lot of sense. Like I, I think, and maybe now we're finally seeing a return to working from the office in a more sustained way. I mean, I think this whole work from home or, you know, don't come into the office very often thing has gone on a lot longer than I would have thought. And I think, depending on which way the economy goes. If we have a bigger recession later this year or at any point down the road and the labor market stops being quite as tight as it's been, I think you'll probably see more people calling their employees back into the office. And likewise, I think if you start to see a more competitive market for your average company out there trying to do sales, you'll probably see an uptick in business travel where the, you know, the salespeople, the consultants are back out traveling a little more than they were. But Look, it's a really fascinating thing. And, you know, the, the analogy that I keep pushing back on people with is that if you think about some of the biggest earthquakes that have ever happened in American economic history, COVID would be right up there, right in the top of the list. I mean, certainly on the Mount Rushmore of like biggest economic earthquakes we've ever had. And the analogy that you might want to look at is back in the Great Depression, the stock market used to be open on Saturday and pretty much everybody used to go into their office on Saturday, at least for half a day. And that all stopped because the world just kind of got shaken by its core and, and turned upside down for a while and the changes stuck. So my working thought right now would be that we're probably in a world where very few people are going to commute five days a week to their job. They're probably going to still have to go in two, three or four days a week to their job. And then how much are they actually traveling? Like, I, I would assume we're probably going to get back to the world we lived in before in terms of business travel, but I, I wouldn't put a ton of confidence on that because I think there's still a lot to the jury's still out in a lot of ways. Labor costs are increasing quickly given the newest pilot deals. How does that affect the industry? What what would you like to see airlines do to mitigate those increased costs? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because there's there's just a lot of things in the airline business that are outside of airline management's control. And I think this is one of them because you have to have pilots, you have to have good pilots, they have to be trained and they have to be paid. And to a certain extent, I think pilots will be willing to work at one company over another because they can climb the ladder more quickly and become a captain more quickly. Or then once they are a captain, they can become, you know, they, they can get their preferred status on the, on the routes they want more quickly or the culture's better or whatever. But, you know, largely speaking, the costs of labor up and down the org chart are going to be set kind of in an industry level. And I don't think that's going to be going backward anytime soon. So it does affect the industry, right? I mean, if you start looking forward to, you know, a couple of years from now, 
you're not going to go back to the unit cost. The chasm levels that we had before are, are not coming back anytime soon because so many of these pieces are, are set in stone. I mean, as much of a problem as Boeing and Airbus have had, I mean, they're not giving away airplanes for free these days, right? And the physical aircraft and the pilots and the flight attendants make up a huge chunk of the operating costs of, of any airline. And so it's, it's really hard to see those going backward. I don't see that in any state of the world, even if we do have a big recession coming anytime soon, not only because the contracts and the purchase agreements are pretty much set in stone, because that's just how most industries operate, right? I mean, once you give somebody a salary of 100, it's really hard to go backwards to 80 or 90, right? I mean, that's just that's just not how most things work. So I, if I were running an airline, I mean, you just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing on every possible cost that you can control, right? Every vendor, every every piece of the cost structure that you can control, it just puts more and more pressure to keep those costs down. And in a sense, that's a wonderful thing, right? Because it drives efficiency, it drives competition, it drives resources going to their best and highest use anywhere in the industry. But it's it's day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat that is really rough and there's no easy answer to it. Yeah. So one of the people who famously lost a lot of money investing in airlines was Warren Buffett. He wrote in his 2007 investment letter, one of my favorite quotes from the airline business, after he lost a $385 million investment in U.S. Airways preferred stock, he said, if a farsighted capitalist had been present at Kitty Hawk, he would have done his successors a huge favor by shooting Orville down. Mr. Buffett said airlines have an insatiable need for capital and investors pour money into a bottomless pit. He came back to that pit, however, and had about a $4 billion stake in American Delta Southwest and United, then sold it all after the pandemic hit. He owned close to 10% of each of those airlines uh, before the pandemic. So what do you think of Buffett's history with airline investing? Yeah, so I'll say this. I'm a huge admirer of Warren Buffett. He's the great I mean, he's the greatest of all time. If you're in this business and you're, I mean, look, you don't have to be an investor. You can just be a business person of any kind and look at the the marvel that is Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, it's one of the greatest achievements in American history, let alone in American business history. And, you know, he has been absolutely remarkable for multiple reasons, his business acumen, his investment success, uh, you know, the the way that he has set up Berkshire to operate as a model of efficiency and integrity. I mean, I'm an unabashed fan, so take this for for whatever it's worth. I'll say this. On the U.S. Air piece, uh, that's a fascinating one, right? Because he made that investment a long time ago in the 1990s. I think the initial investment was in 1993, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. And you're correct, I think, right. about the, uh, the, the money that he did put into that. It was actually a preferred issue that paid a cumulative dividend. And so about a year or two after he made that preferred investment, the company just hit the skids. I mean, they had all sorts of problems. The industry was still quite unconsolidated. US Air had a whole bundle of problems. Uh, He and his partner, Charlie Munger, actually went on the board for a period of time and they gave full credit. I mean, he pretty much updated it every year as it was going through it. And he was the first to say that I screwed this up. I should not have put this money uh, in when I did. And it was only through the miraculous uh, efforts of management at the time, and also through a heap of good luck that they actually did. I'm pretty sure he got um, a little bit more than 100 cents on the dollar out of that investment. But he did at one point write it down. I'm pretty sure at one point after three or four years, he was carrying that investment at 25 cents on the dollar. And then again, through some miraculous effort and and some what he would agree is just good luck, um, 
things turned around for a short period of time. They actually made up the shortfall, shortfall in the dividend. Um, and they got out of that investment by the skin of their teeth. But, you know, the opportunity cost of the capital was quite huge. He would be the first to agree that that was a, a mistake for sure. And it took a lot of good luck. But that's actually, you know, kind of the hallmark of a great investor, right? Even when he makes a mistake and screws up, he doesn't really lose very much. And then the the, the more interesting one is what happened uh, leading into COVID. So, And this is actually how I came to the industry, too. Because like I said, when American Airlines... Um, was going through bankruptcy and and actually completing its own transformational merger through some of those predecessors. Uh, you know, it's ironic that we came back to that. And this is actually how Buffett came to the industry, by the way. Um, so Ted Weschler was pretty involved. He's one of the deputy uh, investment chiefs there and knew some of the senior management in the industry. And in particular, he had also been involved at US Air and, and through the America West days and knew Doug Parker quite well. And Ted Weschler is an amazing investor and an executive of his own. And so he kind of brought this to the attention of, of Buffett and the Berkshire Cognoscenti and said, you know, this is worth re-looking at. And that actually coincided around the time. I don't know if you guys remember this. I'm a huge fan of Costco too. It's just one of the great businesses that's, that exists in the world. They had American Express as their only payment vendor for 20 plus years, 25 years. And around 2015, 2016, if memory serves, they actually put the contract up for bid and kicked American Express out, which was just unthinkable. And they gave the business to Citibank and Visa because they were willing to do it at basically zero margin and American Express wasn't. And no less an authority than Buffett and Munger, who were the lead shareholder at American Express, said that they thought it was actually a mistake for American Express to let that business go. And so I started thinking about, well, how... I was kind of behind on the the payments models at the time. Though, how how could they be making enough money for this to be worth it if they weren't going to get any margin on the charge volumes at, at Costco? So I started going down the list. Say, well, who's who's American Express's next most important uh, co-brand partner? And it was Delta Airlines. And so I started digging into this, and I realized that these airlines, I mean, particularly the big legacy carriers in the U.S. I'm, I'm speaking about Delta, American, United, and Southwest in particular. Here, Alaska has a great program too, but they they all make a fortune off of these co-branded credit card programs where the banks issue the credit cards and they pay the customer, they pay the banks, the banks pay the airlines, excuse me, a, a fee every month. So however many times you swipe your credit card, whatever you're charging on your credit card every month, they're getting that money up front. So it, it's a huge benefit to the airlines because they're getting that money in every month. And then as you redeem the frequent flyer miles, it's, it's usually about 17, 18 months down the road. They've had that use of capital the whole time. And this has turned into an enormous business. So again, referring back to Delta, just because SkyMiles is probably uh, the best and most profitable of the programs, I think an advantage at American might be slightly bigger. Um, but they're going to generate $7 billion of revenue off of that program this year. It might be even closer to eight. And the, the operating margins and the free cash flow margins are about 50%. I mean, these, this is one of the great businesses of the world, right? You get paid up front, you have negative working capital, and you're making 50% margins. I mean, it's just a total home run. So I can guarantee you that that played a huge part in Buffett's willingness to come back into the airlines uh, in the four or five years before COVID. So you're right. He put about, uh, it was actually about 7 or $8 billion to work to own just less than 10% of each of the big four uh, American, United, Delta, and Southwest. The reason for that is if you go over 10%, it triggers all sorts of regulatory headaches and it, you can't trade things as freely. It just is usually more hassle than it's worth. So he viewed this as, you know, he basically had a minority stake in 80%. He owned 10% of 80% of the airline industry, right? Because that's roughly what the big four controlled. And uh, he was perfectly happy with it. And, and, you know, he couldn't have cared less about the normal cyclical ups and downs 
of what the airline industry always suffered. But then when COVID hit, you're correct. In uh, in April into maybe early May of 2020, uh, over a period of two or three weeks, he sold the entire stake. The good news, again, and the hallmark of an amazing investor that, that he certainly is, he got about six $6 billion out for the proceeds of his of his sales and he'd put in seven or seven and a half or something like that so he really didn't lose a time I mean, a billion is a lot of money don't get me wrong but a company the size of berkshire you know losing a billion dollars in that context was a pretty good outcome and you know he's he's spoken about it uh he said that he just thinks that the competitive dynamics of the industry have changed and you know it's again every investor is different but i would say that probably the majority of investors that i know say that if you invest in a company regardless of what the industry is or what the details are and you invest because you expect x and y and z and then x and y and z go completely flying out the window because some unforeseen problem has happened it's usually a good idea to just kind of reevaluate and reset things and sell and move on and i think that's what he did i mean he was very complimentary of the airlines, he was very complimentary of management. Um, you know, it was not like the bad old days, right? Where US Air was really on death's doorstep. And there was a very real chance that he was going to lose that entire $350 million investment that he put into US Air preferred back in the day. And in this case, it was, you know, he only owned the common, right? He didn't have a, you know, any sort of dividend or liquidation preference here. And, and I think it was just a fact that he couldn't really forecast the demand and the business travel dynamics, et cetera, that he, like he thought he could pre-COVID. And like we just talked about a minute ago, I agree. It's hard, right? I mean, it's really difficult. Phil, this has been an amazing education for all of us. Tell us about your teaching at Northwestern. What do you teach and have you used airlines as case studies or examples? It's funny. I actually 100% use airlines as an example because one of my favorite things to do when I'm teaching anybody about investing, whether it's you know my friends and family, I'm a real hit at cocktail parties, as you can imagine, or whether it's MBA students who are paying for this brilliance. But what I'll do is I'll do what's called a blind valuation. And, and yeah, I'll just put up a set of numbers on a page and say, this is a company, You know, it's a Fortune 500 company headquartered and traded in the US. And here's what it's done for the last five years. Here's what it's probably going to do in rough numbers this year. What would you pay for this asset? And it really forces people to say, huh, like this is an interesting company. Like here's the revenue. Here's how much it's been growing. You know, here are the margins. Here are the returns on capital. Here's whatever they're doing with the money, if they're buying back stock or paying a dividend or whatever. And uh, pretty much every time I put up, you know, some high flying company, you know, some superstar tech company that might be growing revenue by 100% a year, but bleeding cash to do so, you know, people get really nervous and they say like, oh, wow, that looks, that looks kind of crazy. Like, I don't know that I could really pay anything for that. And then you put up an airline and you say, okay, well, this company's actually profitable. They, you know, believe it or not, the returns on capital aren't terrible anymore. They're not like a software business, but they're pretty decent. And so the, the, the valuation numbers that most people come back with are you put up some high flying tech superstar and they're probably saying like, I'd pay 10 cents on the dollar for what the market's saying today. And then you put up like an airline and they'll say, oh, I'd probably pay two or three times what the market is valuing this company at today. So it's been really, really fascinating to do that over the years with the students. And then you, you do the great reveal where you say, well, oh, by the way, this was Amazon or you know some company like Carvana or some really fancy disruptive company. And they go, oh, well, wait a minute, like I'm 10% of what the market's saying. And then you put up Alaska or Delta or Southwest or you do the, you know, what you could have made if you just bought you know, 500 shares of Southwest in 1985 or something, and you could live off of that the rest of your life. It's really an eye opener for them. So it's, it's really fascinating. But anyway, to answer your original question, yeah, I'm an adjunct. I teach one class a year 
where we're trying to take uh, current MBA students and undo the years and years of disservice that the business schools have done over the years by not teaching them about investing as much as we should, in my opinion. So we we get them out. They have to do an internship with a with a with a firm. So it could be a hedge fund, mutual fund, family office, pension, endowment, anything like that. And they have to do a, a research based project for the length of the term. And then every Wednesday they have a class session with me where I rant and rave, just like I've been doing with you guys, and try to teach them what I think I've learned over my years doing this. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's, 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 there's nothing better. And Ben, I know you, you teach as well and you probably feel the same way. There's nothing that forces you to clarify your own thinking and your own process and, and really sharpen up what you know more than having to stand in front of a room of smart people and explain it to them and teach it to them. It's been a, I, I'm sure that I've gotten way more out of it than the students have. I agree with that 100% Phil. This has been terrific. I'm sure we may have lost one or two listeners in your rants, but I bet most of our listeners really are going to eat this up. Have a great week, Phil. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for listening to the show. And we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks, Phil, for that fascinating interview. I sure did learn a lot. We want to thank our newest sponsor, DoHop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Ben, we have several interesting listener comments this week about past topics we've discussed. Thomas from Dallas says, Ben and Scott, antitrust issues have, as they should be, been a hot topic on the show. I am a lawyer with an economics degree, and I have many times found myself scratching my head when it comes to DOJ's positions on these issues. Sometimes it seems to be a bit of voodoo. Thomas offered a thorough analysis to us of the battle over two gates at Dallas Love Field as an example. The Department of Justice got involved because there was an agreement to phase out the Wright Amendment, which restricted air service at Love Field to protect the much bigger and newer DFW International Airport. American had two gates at love, but DOJ wanted more competition in the Dallas market, so it insisted that Virgin America get to use those gates. Alaska bought Virgin America and now flies only two flights a day from Love Field. Delta has had a long legal battle with Southwest over one gate and now has its own gate due to Alaska's pullback. Southwest, of course, wants all the gates it can get, since there are only 20 at love. Thomas says, all of this to say the DOJ meddled in the market and created a suboptimum result. The DOJ's insistence led to an inefficiency. His point is that Delta could have done more, 
or Southwest could have done more to benefit travelers in the Dallas market. The DOJ gets so myopic sometimes, Thomas says, and only focuses on one factor. There are also examples of airlines at slot-restricted East Coast airports having to divest slots that end up going to ULCCs that simply add more flights to Florida that are already served by multiple airlines offering cheap fares at the expense of a destination losing nonstop service. Now, that's not to say that those extra flights to Florida don't provide a benefit to some. However, it's a narrow view of competition that excludes some other important factors that should be considered. Thomas says, always enjoy what you guys have to say. Thank you for providing these robust discussions every week. Thanks for your comments, Thomas. I agree with a lot of that and said before on the podcast that DOJ's behavior has been largely political from both parties, depending on which has been in the White House. The airline industry is very high profile. It's also very difficult to legislate or regulate competition in the airline business since planes are so portable. It's why I think DOJ should focus on the players, what competitors are threatened and which are worth supporting for competition, rather than focusing on seats in a particular market. Those seats always change no matter what you do. See the forest, not just the trees. I think that was a great comment from Thomas. Thank you. And you can see both your legal and economic thinking in that answer. I thought it was fantastic. The other thing I'd say is decisions made are in a vacuum. The industry is where it is. So you need to look at the industry with the players based on earlier decisions of the DOJ, even if they were different people running it from the ones now. Andrew from Seattle wrote to us to say, Hi, Ben and Scott. Thank you for continuing to educate me and others about the airline industry each week. I wanted to get your thoughts on an issue related to equity in the hiring process at airlines and how it relates to the quality of pilots flying around the national airspace today. During recent FAA hearings, there have been a lot of statements related to, I don't care whether my pilot is from a certain background, as long as they have the qualifications to become a pilot. From my perspective, one of the benefits of an equitable hiring process and talent pipeline investment is that it helps airlines reach those groups who have historically not had access to pilot training due to financial issues or other cultural pressures, increasing the pool of potentially talented pilots. Mike from Grapevine, Texas, mentioned in your February 22nd show that U.S. flight schools notoriously coddle, carry, prod, and drag pilots through the program as long as the checks keep cashing. A more severe interpretation of this, admittedly, flying commercially is reserved for those who can afford to push their way through training rather than for those who are qualified but lack the funding to do so. So my question is, 
What is your thought on the U.S. government investing in pilot training for underrepresented groups in aviation, such as people of color or women, as a way to grow the pipeline and improve the overall quality of pilots in the U.S.? Ben, I think it's a terrific point, and kudos to Andrew. I think the U.S. needs to invest in pilot training, period. There should be special grants and low-interest, long-term federal loans to support the huge expense of pilot education, an expense that Congress made much, much higher by requiring 1,500 hours of experience for commercial airline pilots. Special incentives for underrepresented groups will help open the pool of candidates. As Andrew notes, lots of folks have seen airline piloting as a world not available to them. The profession needs people, smart, skilled people, and so it really needs to broaden the population of people who see this as a practical and possible career choice. If you're going to stick by the 1,500-hour rule, Congress, step up with a creative program to solve the problem you created. You know, a real interesting book that I would recommend, it's a very old book, it's called The Ravens. It's about a program that was never sort of formally authorized by Congress, where the U.S. operated in the country of Laos during the Vietnam War. But not getting into those politics, what's really interesting about that book is they talk about taking Laotians who had only been farmers and hadn't even seen modern machinery and trained them in relatively short period of time to fly what was at the time the most modern fighter jets. And it's amazing to think if you can take someone who's only been a farmer and lived off the land and put them in one of the most technologically advanced pieces of equipment of their day and have them fly it for the U.S. military, we can broaden this pipeline for pilots in the U.S. enormously. And you know, Ben, the the sort of modern day equivalent of that would be um, kids today grow up playing all kinds of video games. And there's a lot to flying that's like a video game. I think there are a lot of people who would really enjoy it, but they don't see how they could afford the $300,000 to get the training before you get your first airline job. Um, There really needs to be a more economical path uh, so uh, so that we can get the best and the brightest flying airplanes. I think the trick there, Scott, is the training that would have to happen as part of that is the recognition that there isn't a real consequence if you fail in the video game. Mm. But if you fail in the cockpit, there could be huge consequences. Absolutely. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Thanks again to Phil Ordway for some great insights. Have a great week, everyone, and have fun on April Fool's Day. (laughs) Thanks for listening. No April Fool's joke. Send us your questions and comments, and we'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.